Such a blessing to be back with you after being away for a full week. It's been an uplifting week. It's been good to be with Luke and Levi and Christopher and Grady and a bunch of other men who have dedicated their lives to serving the Lord and to encouraging others to do that. Uh, and so how can you not be encouraged being around a group like that? But it's encouraging to be with you because you're doing the same thing. <laughs> you're giving yourselves to the Lord. You're here today, and that's a testament to that. You want to learn more about Him. You want to worship Him. You want to encourage those around you to be doing that. And so I commend you for that. I thank you for that. I need that, and I appreciate you sharing in that with me as well. Just before we moved here, I had an opportunity to teach uh, online some young folks in Brazil. And uh, I was given the task of dealing with this overarching theme, what difference does it make? And there were several questions that young people will be sort of wrestling with as they go out under their, under their lives and start out on their own. And the question that was given to me specifically was, what difference does it make whether or not we decide to drink alcohol? This is not just a young person's issue, however. And even after being with the young people all this week and thinking more about how I can be encouraging people to think about how they're going to make decisions going forward in their lives, Many of us need to wrestle perhaps with this issue. Maybe you do wrestle with this issue. I don't know. Uh, I haven't spoken individually much with, with you about this particular issue. But it is something we need to be weighing. Uh, we need to consider what difference does it make if I'm going to drink or not. Some alcohol, much alcohol. Uh, we need to consider what the Lord says about that. Certainly friends of ours will be struggling with this and maybe friends of ours that are seeking uh, to serve the Lord and want to know more about uh, our lives in this respect. And so the question comes up, does the use of alcohol have a place in the Christian's life? Is there a place for a little bit of alcohol? Certainly uh, what we'll analyze in just a moment, certainly that people who are serious about serving the Lord understand that it's a sin to be drunk. And yet there are some common justifications for drinking I've come across among Christians and certainly among people who would say they're interested in the things of the Lord, there are justifications made. And people will ask these kind of questions. I want to sort of analyze three questions today that come up when we talk about drinking. And sometimes they're justifications by people who say they're seeking to serve the Lord. The first is, where in the Bible does it say, I can't drink one little beer? It's almost always one little. I'll use that a couple of times. And unfortunately, what happens is the person starts with one little and ends up with more. The justification was for one little, but ends up becoming a lot. And even when that's consistently the case, the justification will still be, well, I, I only intended one little. Uh, let's be honest about where we're heading when we start down certain paths. But where in the Bible does it say, I can't drink one little beer? It's interesting because you're not going to find that word in the New Testament at all. Beer was not a thing. Uh, you'll see the word strong drink that we'll talk about something that's very similar to beer, but beer as we know it was not a thing in the Bible. What about this issue? I've known some Christians that really struggle with this. Well, cultured people, you know, they understand the distinctions between different types of wines and maybe even take classes on, uh, on understanding even the different regions and how they affect the flavors. Can't cultured people enjoy one little glass of wine on some special occasion, maybe with dinner or on some special occasion? You know, in Europe... They give wine to children with dinner. Well, why can't we just sort of partake in a little bit of wine? I mean, it's healthy, right? We, there are studies talking about how good it is for your heart. And after all, Jesus made wine at a wedding party. So how are you going to tell me that I can't have a little bit of wine maybe at a wedding or some formal occasion like that? 
can cultured people enjoy a little taste of wine and, and get to where they understand the differences and the subtle nuances of different kind of flavors of wines and champagnes? Isn't that something that cultured people can do in a, in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord? And here's one that I actually came across this. Uh, I've heard people say this, but I actually came across this, someone trying to defend this on a website for neo-Calvinists who will say things like, well, Martin Luther, you know, he made his own beer and his own wine. And a lot of the, the older guys at these monasteries, they would, they would make their own wine and beer. So obviously they didn't think it was wrong. Well, won't we have better opportunities to reach our non-Christian friends if we just share a cold one with them? What if we, we go out to the local microbrewery and just sit with some of our friends? We just have one. And what was argued on the, on the site, it was amazing to me, was once the spirit gets flowing, it's easier to, to break down barriers and begin talking about things that are really important, like talking about the Lord. Um, okay, <laughs> that is a justification. But I want to analyze if that's something that the Lord uh, really is pleased with. And I want to do that by really looking at what the scriptures say about the use of alcohol and then plugging those things into these common justifications and see if there's a place for alcohol in the life of the one who is serious about serving and pleasing the Lord. So let, we'll analyze these three, but first we're going to look at some direct counsel from the scriptures. Obviously, the scriptures prohibit drunkenness. I don't even need to go read those texts because they're obvious. Everybody knows that. Even non-Christians know that. It's an obvious thing. But did you realize how much the scripture advises staying away from alcohol? Not just drunkenness, but keeping your distance from alcohol. Maybe people don't realize that as much. So let's go to Proverbs 23. I'm going to use text that you're going to recognize. But I want you to really think about what they're saying. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? <sighs> there are some warnings here for those who linger long at the wine or go in search of mixed wine. I think it's interesting. David, uh, as he was helping us prepare for the Lord's Supper, he talked about why would he drink the bitter cup of sorrow, pain, and woe? Isn't it interesting that the cup of God's wrath often is sort of compared to the intoxicating stupor and the terrible results of drunkenness, of alcohol? <laughs> Woe, sorrow, contentions, pain, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. Those who linger long at the wine. Well, that's not just a sip. <laughs> that's not just one little one. That's someone who's lingering long. It's also someone who sort of goes in search of it. <laughs> he hasn't even gotten there yet. And he's saying, this is where it's going to end up. <laughs> You go looking for wine. This is where you're going to end up. And so what does he give as counsel? This is direct counsel. He talks about how bad it is, but then he says, here's the way you avoid that, verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Don't even look at it. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? Does that sound familiar? 
How do you avoid adultery? What does Jesus say about that? You want to avoid adultery? <laughs> Can I have just a little bit of adultery? Can I just spend one night at the lady's house? That's not really adultery, is it? You know, her husband will be back the next day. I'll just spend one night there. Can we understand how ridiculous that argument is? <laughs> the solution is mental discipline to avoid the problem. In, in Matthew 5, it is very interesting how this proverb uses the exact same basis of this very famous statement from Jesus in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27, when he's talking about avoiding adultery. You've heard it said to, uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. That's exactly the same basis that Solomon is using here to talk about not becoming drunk. Don't even look at it. Don't let the wine entice you when it's in the cup. That's the counsel. If you want to avoid wounds without cause, redness of eyes, if you want to avoid those other problems, don't even look at it. What is the end of it? It stings like a viper. And interestingly enough, it makes you, even with all of that, decide you want more. That seems like a foolish course of action, to go back for more. Stings like a viper means it gives you a fatal wound. A viper is a venomous serpent that <laughs> is going to kill you, is what Solomon is saying. And it creates foolish addiction. Anybody outside seeing someone who is obviously torn by the effects of alcohol going back for more would say, what a fool. And yet sometimes we want to play around with things that are foolish and say, well, that's only that fool. <laughs> It'll never happen to me. But do we realize how fools get involved with adultery? <laughs> it's the same process. It's interesting that in Proverbs 7, when we look at the language there of adultery, boy, it sounds an awful lot like this same thing that's happening with drunkenness. Proverbs 7, verses 21 to 23. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. Don't look at the wine when it entices you in the cup. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately went after as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The same warnings. There's an attraction. There's a draw. So don't look at it. Don't let it attract you. Don't let it draw you in because it brings you to a point where it will kill you, where you'll become so addicted to the problem that it drags you down and there's no way out. So there's a warning for those who lingers long at wine. Let's go back to Proverbs 31. I'm going to read from the New King James, and I want to point out some, some of the language that's in the New American Standard after this. New King James, Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Okay, so the New American Standard has an interesting take on that. And this is most of the other translations. There is a translational issue. But it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire intoxicating drink. Otherwise, they'll drink and forget what is decreed. They'll forget the law that comes from God. They'll pervert the justice of all the afflicted. They're in a position where they need to be sober-minded so they can help other people. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it ought to. 
first, back in Leviticus chapter 10, right after Nadab and Abihu die for not being sober-minded about their service, as they offer profane fire to the Lord, God gives instructions to the priest saying, you shall not come near strong drink when you're in the tabernacle to do your service, because you must discern between what is pure and impure, what is holy and unholy, what is clean and unclean, and you must teach the children of Israel to do so. <laughs> you cannot be messing with your mind with intoxicating drink while you're doing this important task. <laughs> Don't forget what's decreed. Don't pervert the justice of the afflicted because you're after drink or desiring intoxicating drink. And so the counsel here is, don't drink it and don't desire it. <laughs> don't look on the cup. Don't desire strong drink. Again, the issue is discipline to avoid strong drink from the beginning. I want to just share something with you. The word used for strong drink here is talking about alcohol with the content that would be somewhere around what beer is today. People say, well, beer's not strong drink. It's like only 6% alcohol. It's such a, a weak drink. That was a strong drink to the ancients. People will sometimes say, well, they couldn't preserve their wine and their, and their alcohol, so it would have a really high alcohol content. No, <laughs> it got up to about 6 or 7% alcohol content, about what a beer is today. The process of fortifying wines and, and strong drink that gets it up to 12, 13%, what we're thinking of in, in common wines today and more than that, that's a process that came about in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Natural processes, fermentation will take you to about 6 or 7% alcohol a beer. That's strong drink when the Bible gives warnings. That's a little beer. <laughs> I want to think about that. Stay away from strong drink from the beginning is what God told his priests. And now look in the New Testament at the instructions given to those who would be elders and those who would be deacons, those who would be leaders in local congregation. 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Some of the instruction to them is that they should not be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. You think about some of the things that come along with those who spend their time given to wine. <laughs> You're going to find people that uh, are quarrelsome. <laughs> You're going to find people that get violent or greedy and are not gentle. Those things sort of all come together. <laughs> uh, there was a, a poem I remember from uh, my college years called My Papa's Waltz. And it's this little kid hanging on to his father while his father's drunk and waltzing all over the, the living room. And he's holding on, not knowing, is this safer to be stuck to him? I love him. I want to be with him. Or is this more dangerous? Because he's going to hit me and he's going to bruise me. And it was this conflict of this young man not knowing whether his dad was loving him or, or, or getting ready to injure him because of the way his father was when he drank. It wasn't really meant to be a tender poem. It was meant to show how this conflict arose in this child's life. But men who are to be exemplary are told, don't be given to wine. The same thing with deacons in verse 8. Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, the same instruction is given. For men who would be an example to others, they must be blameless as steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. They're to set an example. So strong drink from Proverbs and also in 1 Timothy and then all between is not fitting for rulers, not fitting for priests, not fitting for spiritual leaders. And in Christ, we have all of those roles. If you think about it, look at Revelation chapter 1, for example. In Revelation chapter 1, as John is revealing this last book, what does he say about 
from whom the book is, uh, is written and to whom. <laughs> it's written from the seven spirits who are before his throne, verse 4, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over all the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and look at verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Are we rulers? In God's kingdom, in a certain sense, yes, we are. <laughs> He's made us to be kings and priests, or princes and priests, some translations may have. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we have been set up as a royal priesthood. What, that, what God wanted in Israel, remember in Isaiah, he says they're all drunk, even their priests and their prophets. <laughs> he didn't get what he wanted in Israel. He wants a sober-minded people that can be his special treasure above all the earth, that can be his kings and priests, a royal priesthood. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. I love the, what, what Paul tells Timothy personally. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Is it not true that our society often looks down on the teenagers and early college goers because they're not serious? They're, they just want to get drunk. They just want to party all the time. Paul's saying, Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth. You show them that young people can be serious, can be sober-minded, can be an example in conduct, in purity, in word. <laughs> it's not just a young person problem. But we want to be an example before the world. We want to do that in a way that's going to have them glorifying God and not saying, that person serves God. I don't want to be like them. I said that when I was an atheist <laughs> about people who were not living the way they ought to live and claimed to be serving God. I want to ask you this question as we're looking at these these. Uh, New Testament considerations here and not given to much wine. Some people say, well, you can be given to a little. <laughs> That's not the point of that phrase. The phrase is not given to any is the point. But you think God would desire less caution from the spiritual people than he desired from his physical people, Israel, who were supposed to be a spiritual people, but they kind of just left it on the, on the, the, the stones. They didn't put it on their heart like they were supposed to. But would God, does God desire less caution with these things from from spiritual Israel than he would from physical Israel? Or has he not shown us a covenant that is deeper, that is more reaching, that brings us into his very presence and not just sort of out at the gates? <laughs> I want to consider that. I think we need to, to consider that. He's not just prohibiting drunkenness. He's saying stay way away. 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is interesting. This has been used uh, by people I know to say, see, Paul's saying you can drink. He told Timothy, don't drink only water, verse 23, use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. He was giving him medicine, but the fact that he had to tell him to do it shows that Timothy didn't have a habit of drinking wine. He said, Timothy, it's okay as medicine. You notice at the end of Proverbs 31, you give it to people who are dying. There is an effect that alcohol can have to, uh, as an antiseptic, it can be useful. Can pour it on wounds. Wine and oil often dress the wounds. In the Good Samaritan story, he poured wine and oil on his wounds. There's antiseptic. There is medicinal reason. Some medicines we have have alcohol in them. Some people will say, you saying I can't have a drop of alcohol? Do you drink NyQuil? <laughs> well, yes, I do. It's a medicine. I'm not trying to get drunk. There are people who will drink a bottle of NyQuil because they're trying to get drunk. <laughs> I've known people who, when they couldn't find anything else, would drink cough medicine for that very reason. That's a whole different story. <laughs> Timothy avoided wine. And so Paul had to say, look, Timothy, it's okay. You're still going to be an example to the believers if you do this for your stomach's sake. 
I don't know if I've told this uh, story in here before, but my father-in-law is a, is a kidney stone machine. He just makes them all the time. There's been times he's had 17 or 18 at a time on one side. <laughs> and he just continues to make them. And the doctors have tried everything. And finally, a doctor said, you know, beer will soften them and, and help you to pass them easier. You should drink beer. It's, it's been proven that it'll help. And he said, well, I don't drink alcohol. And the man said, it's not the alcohol. It's the process of the fermentation of the beer. You can, you can do it with non-alcoholic beer. So he decided he was going to do that. He went to the store and he was buying a case of non-alcoholic beer. And he's, he was an elder at the time in the congregation where he was. And he saw a member of the congregation who struggled with alcoholism across the way. Well, that case of non-alcoholic beer from a distance looks like beer. He decided right there that he would rather live with kidney stones than to take a chance at causing someone else to stumble. And he put that back. <laughs> He didn't even take it for medicinal purposes because of the image it might have presented. Now, he had every right. He could have done that, but he was being cautious. While so many who are doing things they don't have a right to do are taking no caution and are not thinking about the Lord. The direct counsel from Scripture is saying, stay away. If you want to have the kind of life before the Lord that's an example to others, stay away from alcohol. 1 Peter 4, 3 and Galatians 5 were really helpful to me in considering these, these issues. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 3 is talking about our life as it was before and where it is now. We've spent enough time of our past life doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry, some of your versions will say, and carousings and other things like these. In fact, Galatians 5 does exactly that. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Again, I think the, the New American Standard has a better handle on part of the text, and so I'll point that out. But look at these works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19. They're evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, the New American Standard says. What is like drunkenness and revelries? He's talking about these banquetings, these feastings where there's alcohol involved. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the works of the flesh. I think that's interesting to consider. Things like these. There are other things that he just didn't specifically mention that have to do with revelries and drunkenness and, as Peter pointed out, a long list of things that the Gentiles do. But we've spent enough time involved in those things. Let's leave those things behind. Those who practice those works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and Romans 15, 4 talk about the things that happened to people before time in the Old Testament that were written for our admonition, that we may learn from what the Scriptures have written to live a certain way or to avoid living a certain way. I want you to think about the times that the Bible speaks of alcohol, where you can think of stories that involve alcohol in the Bible. <laughs> and when you think about the counsel, the things that are written for our admonition through those stories, and we usually think of good examples. <laughs> but when we talk about alcohol in the Bible, it's always bad examples. <laughs> Noah, as he goes out and he takes in the harvest of the grapes and gets drunk, becomes naked in his tent, and ends up cursing one of his sons because of it. Lot, 
whose daughters get him drunk. And he ends up having children with his daughters after escaping the terrors of Sodom and Gomorrah. He just sort of continues the sexual immorality in his own home because he's drunk two nights in a row. In Isaiah chapter 28, we mentioned that before, the priests and the prophets are drinking. There's vomit on all the tables. And I think we're talking about the tables in the temple courts. How disgusting. And God says, I see this. I see this going on. Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is drinking from the vessels of the Lord and they're partying when that hand writes on the wall that you've been weighed and found wanting. The drunken party. Is it a good example? Are there any good examples? Mark chapter 6, Herod on his birthday banquet ends up beheading John the Baptist because he's drunk. And all the people that are with him are drunk and cheering him on. And there are countless other examples. But when you think about what is the Bible trying to tell us with that? Is the Bible trying to say, look how much wine brings joy to the heart. There's a psalm where it mentions that joy makes glad the heart, that uh, wine makes glad the heart. And people say, see, God wants us to be glad in our heart. We ought to be drinking more wine. He's not even talking about being drunk. <laughs> He's talking about the bounty that God gives to people. Wine is part of that. When all you've got is water or wine, <laughs> you're going to want the grape juice occasionally. <laughs> He's not saying just go get drunk because that'll make, that'll make God happy. That obviously is not the case when you see all these other texts. It's amazing how people can convince themselves that what they want to do is what's pleasing to the Lord. <sighs> so let's look at that counsel and sort of ask these questions we started with. Where does the Bible say I can't drink one little beer? <laughs> I mean, just one. One 20-ounce <laughs> little beer. Or however much someone may end up claiming is their little beer. I want you to think about that in terms of this. <laughs> Who's ever come face to face with a grizzly bear? <laughs> I'm fortunate that I haven't. But I have been in areas where there are bears right around us. There's bears. <laughs> and so imagine that you're going camping in a place where you know there's going to be bears. And someone who loves you so much has gone in during the hibernation season and has hung a sign around the bear's neck. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, don't feed me. Because they know that you love animals and you would probably want to go up and feed this cuddly little bear that won't be cuddly when you get too close. So how close do you have to get before you can see what it says on that sign, if you can even see it on there? That close is too close because that's what he's going to be doing by the time you get close enough to read it. But the person who put that on there loved you. Did they get one on every single bear's neck? They couldn't. There's no way. So does God have to give a warning on every single label of every single type of alcohol for you to get the message, the understanding? What if, instead of that, he knew you're going to be in a place where there were bears, and he put up a big sign that says, careful, there's bears here, keep your distance, don't feed them. I've been to, seen a sign almost exactly like that. We used to go to Gatlinburg down in the mountains in Tennessee, and there's, you're always going to run into bears eventually there. But they always tell you, keep a distance. If you see them, they look cuddly, but don't get close because they will get upset with you. And what I want to ask is, which of those is a better warning? Because <laughs> that's what we're dealing with in these texts in the Bible. These are warnings against the abuse of alcohol. What's the better warning? You've got it in your hand and you're reading the label and maybe your eyes are already blurry. And you think, well, this time it didn't hurt. <laughs> or there's a huge sign saying, don't go anywhere near that. Don't even look at it when it's in the cup. And maybe there's a whole bunch of signs. Can you imagine how horrible the landscape would look if you're going to go see the bears and that's what you've got? But that's what the Bible landscape looks like 
when you're looking at alcohol. <laughs> it's warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. Keep 60 feet away, danger, skull and crossbones, exclamation point, all across. The Old and the New Testament are filled with these kind of warning signs. <laughs> now, I'm grateful we can go to bear country and there's only one or two signs and people telling you ahead of time and you can see the bears without all that clutter. But I don't see how people see past the clutter of the warnings in the Bible against alcohol to say, well, I'm just going to have one. <laughs> Where does the Bible say I can't have one? I would ask the question this other way. Where does the Bible show that you should have one? Where does the Bible indicate that it's a good idea to have a beer? Show me that one. <laughs> because that's the way the revelation of God works. Typically, faith is revealed to us. This is what I would like you to do. <laughs> and so we try to find a back door. And well, he didn't say I couldn't have a beer, so I might as well have. Where does it say you can't have heroin? I've never seen that. Does that mean you should? <laughs> Paul does say, I will not be brought under the power of anything. I won't become addicted to things. You've got to be careful about that in, in many other ways. But certainly we can see that with alcohol. There's lots of warnings that are not just saying, don't have one little beer. They're saying, stay away. Respect this. Understand where this is headed. What about cultured people, though? You know, you've got people that really understand how wine works, and they understand all these different nuances. Yeah, they just have a, a little glass of wine on some special occasion. Wouldn't that be okay? <laughs> well, let's think about that for a moment. First off, I want to ask, on special occasions, those are exempt from the dangers of drunkenness, right? <laughs> Any special occasion is just a special occasion. So getting drunk then is not going to really have to bear on these things that the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about ordinary occasions, right? Like a birthday banquet. <laughs> sure, I can have a glass of wine at a birthday banquet. Well, where'd that lead Herod? It probably was more than just wine there. And it was several days of drinking low fermentation drinks until they got to the point, this idea of giving to much wine, does that make more sense when you realize they're talking about something that even at the most fermented is like a beer today? And if you'd given to much wine, you're going to get drunk. You can, you can have wine. Jesus did make wine at a wedding. Now, it was grape juice. We're talking about fermented and, and processed wine like we have today. People will argue that. Obviously, he wanted them to be drunk. He had already said they were well drunk. It means they'd had their fill. It doesn't mean they were drunken. That's not the point. Certainly, the one who said, don't even look at the cup, is not going to make drunk people more drunk wine. <laughs> this is just, it's unfathomable where people come up with some of these arguments. But a birthday banquet, can I have some wine? Well, think about the birthday banquet that we've got registered for us that talks about what happens when people get drunk at birthday banquets. What about a harvest party? Uh, those are really big in Brazil, probably at other places as well. Do you have these at the end of the year? The harvest comes in, everybody goes and has these big festivals, fall festivals. Those are pretty common. Can we have a special occasion there? You know, uh, some kind of a, uh, a ball or a wedding or something like that. Why don't we? And after all, I mean, we're cultured people, right? I mean, we, we learned about this. <laughs> Who determines the culture? <laughs> well, the world does. <laughs> Do you want to fit in with the world? Isn't that what 1 Peter 4 was about? You don't want to continue in these things that the world is exalting. I understand. People really get into these IPAs, and these independent label beers, and all these microbreweries, and these wines, and all this, go to the wine country and do a whole tour. Is that something that the Christian ought to be involved in? To keep up with the culture? You think Lot enjoyed the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah? It wasn't just sexual immorality, all the other things were involved. All these things walk hand in hand with each other. And when we start desiring the culture of the world we're in, instead of trying to change the culture of the world we're in, or trying to be of a different culture, a holy culture, a Christian 
culture among ourselves. We're in real danger. We're lingering too long. Here's the way I would express this danger. Ephesians chapter 5. I love this text for several things that it does. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you notice there's a contrast to those two things? I mean, it's right in the verse. How do you get filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I want you to notice that verses 18 and 19, there are two ways that you can be filled with spirits that will bring about joy. (laughs) One's a false joy. One's a dissipating joy from the spirits of alcohol. The other is from the Spirit of God. It's a lasting joy. It's a contagious joy in a good way for other people. And those are set at polar opposites. And so the one who wants to be filled with the Spirit of God is not going to be contemplating, but how much can I be filled with these other spirits? Because as he does that, he's going the other direction from the Spirit of God. Paul set those as polar opposites. Don't be drunk with wine, with spirits, with dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit. This is really helpful for me to look at this because sometimes I want to take a step in this other direction. I realize I'm walking away from God to do that. Whatever steps we can take that are walking with God and nearer to God, those are good steps. Every step we take that's taking us away from God, there's nothing good about it. These are polar opposites, and Paul has set them up intentionally to be that way. When we have better opportunities to reach our non-Christian friends, if we just share a cold one with them, I mean, we don't want to look like prudes. We don't want to be holier than thou. We can tell people, I don't want that without being rude. Every single time I go home, my dad offers me beer. And he'll tell me, well, your sister, she's a Christian, and she drinks with us. He's got some understanding to do on several levels. But he always offers every single time. And I always say, you know I don't drink. There's a way to do it without being rude. (laughs) And will we have better opportunities? We read 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 5. Peter speaks of the importance of not being like our non-Christian friends in the world. James 4, verse 4 says, Do you not understand that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We're going to have friends that are of the world. He's not saying leave behind your friends of the world. He's saying don't make friendship with the world. Not to be involved in the things they're involved in because that will take us away from God. You want opportunities to teach your friends? How many, honestly, in the bar are going to be sitting there drinking and talking about the Lord and preaching the gospel? That's not why you're going there. You're going there to carouse. You're going there to maybe make friendship seem deeper. Maybe to feel a little better about these things that you want to open up with later maybe. You're not going to be doing it there. I guarantee you you're not. That was an argument made on a quote-unquote Christian website. In fact, it was on these neo, uh, uh, neo-Calvinist websites, and the reason I know the argument is because uh, John MacArthur, who's a Calvinist, was saying, that's ridiculous and you need to quit this. <laughs> you're making us look bad. It was an article that he had written against this new sort of let's get the spirit flowing attitude of the young people. It is ridiculous, and we can see very clearly that it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27, we're not going to read the text, but it's where Paul talks about, I've become all things to all people. That's sort of the argument here. Well, if my friend drinks, I'll drink with him, and then I'll be able to show him that I'm really sympathetic to his case, and I'll preach Christ to him. No, what Paul says in that text is, but I'm not going to be without law to Christ while I'm doing that. 
you know, I'll become as a Gentile with the Gentiles, but I'm not going to do Gentile things. <laughs> I'm going to be under Christ, but I'm not going to walk and talk like a Jew around them. When I'm with the Jews, I'll be like a Jew, but I'm still not going to go get circumcised or make somebody be circumcised. I'm not going to do those things. I'm going to still be under the law of Christ. I just want them to know that I realize where they are and I can be like they are as long as I'm not coming out of being under Christ. He's not saying, let's get involved in their sin. That's ludicrous. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We know this, and yet we try to convince ourselves that it's something else that's needed. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. I just want to read it. We can hammer this home. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So is it your friendship with the person that's going to save them? It might lead to opportunities to talk, but let's not oversell our friendship with people. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to be enemies to people. We want to develop relationships where we can talk about the gospel. But sometimes we prize our friendship above the gospel and say our friendship will save them. No, it won't. (laughs) Especially not if you're involved in sinful things because they'll call you a hypocrite and they won't ever want to be a part of what you say you're a part of. I know, personally. A good friend called me out early on after my conversion and said, why are you doing this with me? Aren't you a Christian? And I thought, he's right. And he never listened to me again. Let's be careful about trying to prize our friendships above the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation. In Galatians chapter 2, I know the context is different, but I want to to share with you just this principle. I think this is so important. Galatians chapter 2, the Judaizers were trying to get Paul and some others to circumcise Gentiles, make them become Jews first so they could then become Christians. And Paul said, no, that is not the truth of the gospel. And what he said is, we did not yield submission to them even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. My fear is that sometimes with this attitude, we're going to yield submission to the gospel for a moment. We're going to get involved a little bit, show that, yeah, we can be real people too, just like you. And then we'll go back and try to talk about holy things. And we've yielded submission. The truth of the gospel has not stood. We've not stood for it. And it's lost. Paul says, don't do that. So what about these, at least these three areas? There's probably more questions you could come up with, more things that people will use to justify. Does it make a difference in those three? Whether we drink or not. Do the warnings that God has put abundantly through his Bible make it sound like he says, oh yeah, once in a while you can dabble with that. Or is he saying, stay away. I believe it's abundantly clear. I do not believe, I'm convicted that the use of alcohol does not have a place in the Christian's life. If you struggle with that, I want to be your friend and help you with that. I really do. I love you, and I want to help you come to the conviction I have. You may not have exactly the way I do, but I want to show you the dangers that the Bible shows, and I've tried to lay those out for you today. The Bible strongly advises the one who seeks to serve the Lord to keep a safe distance from the problems that accompany alcohol. Certainly the one who's addicted to strong drink will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And the social drinker is not more apt to convince others of the gospel's truth. And honestly, all those who became addicted to strong drink started out as social drinkers. (laughs) There's nobody who said, today I'm going to become a drunk and sits down and becomes a drunk. It's slow. And then it takes over. And then they can't get out. It makes a huge difference in our service to the Lord 
whether we're sober-minded or whether we're becoming more and more like the world, culturally, socially, intentionally, whatever the reason is, if we're giving in, as a Christian, we just must say no. <laughs> We've got to turn our backs on this and learn to, to be strong in our convictions about this as well and to help one another. Paul said one of the great ways to avoid that is to be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Back in Ephesians 5, let's go back there for just a moment. Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> you notice that he says the way to do that is to speak about holy things. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. But all of this is done in the context of to the Lord. <laughs> the Spirit is with us because of the Lord. And he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you would be filled with the Spirit, you must be following the Lord. He wishes to place His Spirit within you, that you can be His, that you can be one with Him, that you can have absolute fellowship. But if you're not willing to quit walking as the Gentiles walked, it's going to always be a stumbling, and you're not going to, you're not going to manage the one who walks that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. We want to help you today to consider where your walk is and to help you to be one of those who God would bring into his inheritance. If we can help you with that by bringing you to Christ uh, initially, if you need to repent and be baptized, we want to help you with that. Or if, as a Christian, you've struggled with this question or any other and you just need our help, we want to be your brothers. We want to hold your hands up and help you serve. If we can help you in some way, please make that need known as we stand and sing.